Welcome into the Cougar Tailgate, where BYU fandom lives. Here's your host, Lauren McLean. How's it going, everybody? Lauren McLean here with Cleon Wall, and we are doing what we do best, talking all things BYU Cougars. Here's what we have coming on the show today. Independence collides with BYU and Notre Dame after their impressive uniform reveals. Blackout, baby! We'll recap some of our favorite fighting Irish battles and our most memorable BYU games in Las Vegas, the Cougars' home away from home, ironically. Plus, Newt Rockne Memorial Society Executive Director Jim Lefebvre joins us to discuss the legendary Notre Dame coach and what connections he had to BYU. But first, we're going to talk about the too-close-for-comfort rivalry game last week and a few of our takeaways. What's up, Cleon? Hey, how are you, Lauren? I'm good. Before we get into this Utah State game, uh, I just wanted to see how you were after I, I, that game. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm i fine. It was funny. I never had a doubt that BYU would win that game, but I just didn't know how close it would be. Yeah. I that, that was it. I, I knew BYU would beat Utah State. I was just curious to see if it was going to be a single-digit game or a double-digit game. I, I thought the way BYU was starting to play in the second half, I thought it would be a lot more than it was, but, you know, a 12-point win's a 12-point win. Absolutely, and here are some of the takeaways. BYU wins 38-26. to Max Tooley's pick six to give BYU the lead early on in the game shortly after the first TD by BYU. Loved that play. One of my favorites, Ethan Erickson catches a pass from Jaron Hall right after the half for a touchdown to give BYU the lead and give Ethan his first ever catch. His first ever catch That'd was a nice, touchdown. Huh? Yeah. Oh my gosh, can you imagine being his parent? So what was your first catch like? Yeah, I caught a touchdown. That was a touchdown for the lead in a rivalry game. <laughs> uh, two key players were Cody Epps and Chris Brooks. Epps finished with 86 yards and a TD and five catches, and Brooks ran for 90 yards and a score on 11 carries. Jaron Hall, the man, also finished the game strong, passing for 274 yards and three touchdowns. Here are three of my main takeaways from the game. Brian Logan before the game said that BYU had 99 problems, but Utah State ain't one. And guess what? Utah State was one. They were one. I think BYU's defense can tighten up a bit, and I definitely wouldn't be mad about it. Sorry, their run defense. I think that uh, that was a little suspect to me. Uh, they should have taken more advantage of the Aggies' rookie quarterback, but some some highs, I think. Chris Brooks gave me Harvey Unga vibes, pounding it up the middle. I thought, I mean, he is his coach, right? So it makes sense. <laughs> But we finally got to see him in his element. And given his skill set, I feel like that was his sweet spot. And I hope we get to see more of that from Chris Brooks. Can I, can I, that was actually one of my takeaways. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just that he looked more impressive cutting up the field and staying in between the tackles and running. I think for me, he could have sulked when he got less playing time and they decided to put Miles Davis in. Yeah. As we noticed in the Wyoming game, he did not. He came into the game after Miles Davis got hurt. And he looked impressive to me. I, I I was really happy for him, and I think the team was really happy for him when he when he scored that touchdown in the game, and also when he had a big run too. And maybe he felt like he had something to prove. He's like, all right, I got to step up my game a little bit. Here comes this freshman guy that could be taking my spot. And he, yeah, Chris Brooks came out to his credit, and uh, he crushed it. He looked really, really good. My third takeaway was Jaron Hall is the guy. Are you going to say this every week? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, but, it's, it's but hard I got not something, to though. But I got something after this. Jaron Hall is the guy. I don't think Jake Oldroyd is the guy. Ooh. That's that's where I'm going with this. I think he's a phenomenal human being. I think he's actually an incredible athlete. But after three games, we've you know BYU staff has given him three games to reprove himself, to get his mind right, and it hasn't quite happened. So maybe it's time to give Justin Smith or Cash Peterman a shot. What were your takeaways? Okay, I mentioned my one, Chris Brooks. Uh, my second one, I'm so impressed with the wide receivers right now. Um, you know, 
Puka Nakua and Gunnar Romney, they were going to be the guys this year, and we were so looking forward to watching them play together, and they haven't played together yet. But I've been so impressed with the rest of the guys on this team. Cody Epps, you know, all the all these guys, all the wide receivers, Chase Roberts, I, all of them have just Keanu impressed Hill. me. Yeah, mm-hmm. all of them have impressed me with how they've been able to come out. And, and Jaron Hall has been great at getting them the ball and them being successful where they're getting the ball. So give credit to Aaron Roderick, too. Uh, last thing, BYU has come away with two victories in the past two weeks. But they don't feel like wins. I think we're expecting them to just beat these teams down in Wyoming and Utah State, and they aren't. They're clearly the better team. At no time during either of those games, as I said earlier, was I worried about BYU losing that game. It's just that they weren't winning impressively. Mm -hmm. And so it feels almost like a loss in some way. I mean, BYU's 4-1 and going into this game with Notre Dame down in Las Vegas, and all I keep thinking about is, what are we going to get from this team coming into that game? I think there are some some knowns, and I still think that there are some unknowns, too. And I think a lot of those unknowns deal with people being injured and also the run defense just not being stout. Well, BYU came out against USF and destroyed them in Florida, and then they have this huge win against Baylor at home. So right off the bat, BYU fans' expectations are through the roof, and then you have you know, the Oregon game, which was subpar. And then, and then, yeah, it, it just kind of felt like, okay, when are we going to get back to that high that we had at the start of the season? But speaking of that Oregon game, you and I talked a little bit about uh, uniforms and jerseys. BYU came out with their black and royal blue jerseys for the Notre Dame game. Black and blue on a fight night. I mean, that's oh, a, that was their whole promo. I was so, so happy. Yes, they had Forrest Griffin, a UFC fighter, and Matt Franco – a Vegas magician in the video, like impressive that they can get those guys to go along with it. And I know there is some connection with Puka Nakua and uh, Dana White from the UFC, so I'm sure that's how they got that. But so cool. I love those jerseys. I love the helmet because the jerseys we've seen before in the last decade, the only real difference is that they have the Nike swoosh. Like they're, they're you know, they're sponsored by <laughs> Nike this time, which I actually like way better. <laughs> but uh, the helmets, man, they are, I think it's the first time they have the stretch Y on the side of the helmet and just the fade, the royal going into the black. Woo! I love it. Cleon, what'd you think? You know, I like the blackout jerseys from a few years ago, but I was kind of glad that they went away because it was like in an era where everyone had a blackout game. And I, I'm saying it was, it was everyone, the trend. But I, and I know that's not true, but everyone decided to use some sort of a blackout game mm-hmm. or felt that way. So I was kind of happy that they went away from that. And I thought, you have navy, and I know that's not your favorite, but you oh. had, but when you wear the all navy, when you wear that, it, it almost, it's so dark, it almost looks like a black. So I'm like, well, there's your blackout. It's just the all navy uniforms. But I will have to say, those unis look really nice. I mean, the royal blue accents on them, um, the helmet, I like how it fades. I I don't think it would be the same if it didn't do that, if it was just the royal helmet. I don't think that no, would be no. the same. And I don't think a black helmet would be the same either. I think it's nice that they do this. I think this is something you need to put in your rotation or or something like it. And Lauren, I might be I might be getting on your side. Yes, welcome black. to the dark side. <laughs> I may want black as a third color. Maybe you could add that to some a black accent every once in a while. It reminds me, again, we're going to go back to the 96 team. I was yep. a student here. The 96 team, they actually had black accents 
on the numbers and on the stripes on the shoulders and also on the why there was a black accent behind it, it looked really sharp. And yeah, I have a soft spot for that. So maybe so we could do that again. I yeah, it, I'm going to say these jerseys look sharp and I'm going to say if you had a black accent, that looks sharp too. And I love that uh, Notre Dame came out with their own jersey reveal. Not as good, in my opinion. Oh, but the, wow. But, no, it's just the truth. And uh, But I love that they're doing some special juries, which they are doing for all of the Shamrock series, which we'll get to a little bit later. Like the majority of BYU's foes during Independence, this could be the last time we see BYU-Notre Dame face off for a while. The Fighting Irish lead the series 6-2, to two, but this is the two teams' first meeting in a neutral site. They had some exciting games and not-so-exciting games Against each other. Tell us about 1992, Cleo. Uh, 1992. It was the first time that they played almost 30 years ago that BYU played Notre Dame for the first time. And Notre Dame trounces BYU 42-16. to uh, Some stats from the game. Ryan Hancock had 339 yards, one TD, three interceptions. If everyone remembers Ryan Hancock, the quarterback who went on to become a professional baseball pitcher. Uh, Kalen <laughs> Hall was the leading rusher for BYU. Yay! Good job, Kalen. Except for he only had 31 yards. In fact, BYU only had 56 yards of rushing. Jamal Willis had four rushes for six yards. Maybe not the best way to start out this series, but hey, at least BYU played Notre Dame, right? Unfortunately, it wasn't much better the following year in 1993. Notre Dame led 31-0 to before BYU scored their first touchdown. The final score was 45-20. to BYU only had 235 yards of total offense, 140 through the air, and quarterback John Walsh injured his knee, and most of the rest of the game was played by Tom Young, Steve Young's younger brother. That's a fun little stat, though. Yeah, that was, that was kind of the year. Those two years were kind of the years where you... Went through a lot of quarterbacks. John Walsh yeah. had some health problems. You had Steve Clements. You had Tom Young. You had Ryan Hand. You had a lot of well, different quarterbacks. Well, because I'm not going to lie to you. I'm like, who are these guys? <laughs> you had a lot of different quarterbacks. And it was hard for me to keep up. I will readily admit, I was actually on my mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints during these two seasons. But I remember reading about all these different quarterbacks that the, that, that the BYU team went through. John Walsh was supposed to be the guy, and he had a lot of great attributes about him especially when it came to being a quarterback but he had a hard time staying healthy and I will have to say I'm not sure a lot of the fans liked him sometimes too but he he was a really good quarterback he just couldn't stay on the field all the time oh well 1994 was the breakthrough year BYU beat Notre Dame 21 to 14 BYU's only win in South Bend and there's Jamal Willis showing his desire at the goal line and going over the top for the touchdown that was the game-winning touchdown. Thanks to NBC for the highlight. I love that his desire to get into the end zone. Yes. That was great. He ended up with 75 rushing yards, 83 yards receiving, two, D- two TDs, including that game-winning touchdown. And you know when you see, the when you pan out, they, they show videos at the end of the game. NBC has it. And Lavelle Edwards is smiling, and a lot of the team is smiling. And you can see the camera focus in on Lavelle. And in the background is some fullback, Kalani Satake. (laughs) Have you heard of him? Showing off for the camera. You know what's amazing to me about that? Think about that. That was 1994. Kalani was on the team in 2000 during Lavelle's last year. Welcome to BYU and the mission trip. Uh, Side note, Hema Heymouli, Houston Heymouli's uncle, was also a part of this game and rushed for Amir. This was the first... 22 yards. Oh, yes. Well, hey, 22 yards is 22 yards. No, I know. It's great. It's great. Uh, I was a college student, by the way, when I watched this game. I was up at Rick's College. I don't remember much about the game except that BYU won. Jamal Jamal Willis was a stud. And I was amazed, actually. This was a passing error for BYU. And John Walsh did have a a solid game in Mm -hmm. this game. But really, I, I just focused on Jamal Willis and 
and I guess you could say his desire to beat Notre Dame and to help BYU um, to help BYU beat Notre Dame in South Bend. I love Jamal Willis, and he's still involved with BYU till this day. He he, uh, I know he's still a big fan. Two thousand three, Notre Dame won thirty three to fourteen. Two thousand four, BYU beat Notre Dame twenty to seventeen. BYU's only other victory in the series, and John Beck, of course, started the game at quarterback, but Matt Berry finished it. Deep, wide open, caught, touchdown, Austin Crowley, forty two yards. Touchdown. Thanks to ESPN for that highlight. And of course, Austin Colley was involved as well. I feel like John Beck has been involved in some huge wins for BYU. The guy just knows how to win. I think it was great to see the real John Beck the next two years after that. I mean, those first two years, he had a lot of injuries. Mm-hmm. It was good to see the real one in 2005. You know, I was actually on my honeymoon for this game in Hawaii. And I said to my wife, can we watch the game? And she agreed to Your it. Your wife's a lovely woman. I know. And a good I can't, woman. <laughs> but 18 years later, she probably was, is probably like, why did we do that? But yeah, <laughs> at least she was a BYU grad and she was just like, yeah, we can do it. Yeah, it is what it is. 2005, Notre Dame wins, wins 49 to 23. 12, 2012, Notre Dame wins 17 to 14, led by Riley Nilsson. I remember thinking BYU wouldn't win that 2012 game because they were, again, playing in South Bend. All of the contracts they've had, it's been two-for-one type of deals here. So I didn't think BYU would win, but then they're up 14-7 to seven mm-hmm. and a half, and you're like, oh, maybe they're going to do it, but then the Irish killed them with 270 <laughs> rushing yards. Two 100-yard rushers in that game, 149 yards from Theo Riddick, and BYU doesn't score in the second half, and they lose 17-14. to 14. At least it was a close game. And the last time BYU played Notre Dame was in 2013, led by Taysom Hill. I remember this. It looked like just a freezing, cold, miserable night. BYU lost 23-13. to 13. Poor Taysom Hill. Get that guy healthy. <laughs> All right, how do we feel about this rivalry between the two church schools that it is possibly coming to an end? Could you call it a rivalry? That's the thing, too. I... Yes and no. I think the big thing about this rivalry was just what you said. They are two big institutions run by a church, and they're good at football. Mm-hmm. Notre Dame mm-hmm. has a special place in football history, right, right. and they're at the top of the chart, you could say, when it comes to college football. BYU, and I'm not downplaying BYU at all, but BYU is probably your next church school that really, really supports football. Not only supports it, but they've had some really good teams, too. I mean, I'm not trying to say anything against, like, Baylor or right, TCU right, or right. other schools like that. But those two teams, when you think of schools owned by a church and they're good at football, you think Notre Dame, you think BYU. I was really hoping when BYU went independent that this would turn out to be a fun rivalry because I thought two independents, they can schedule each other each year or maybe not each year, but it's got to be close. Come on, Notre Dame, you can do this. And it was all ruined in tw- <laughs> it was all ruined a few years later when Notre Dame says, hey, guess what? For all the rest of our sports, other than uh, football, we're going to join the ACC mm-hmm. because they were part of the Big East before mm-hmm. that. The Big East was coming apart, so they're like, let's hurry and make a move. Yeah. So they made a move. They joined the ACC, and as part of that deal, they're like, we're going to play f- – around five ACC schools a year. An honorary in member of, AC, of the ACC. Basically, basically, yes. You you are correct. And that kind of ruined it all for BYU and Notre Dame. This is the ninth time we, we talked about that, ninth time BYU is going to play. I want to be disappointed about this, and I know 
people have complained a lot about this game in Las Vegas by how many tickets Notre Dame has and have controlled and everything that they're controlling in this game mm-hmm. down in Las Vegas. But in reality, think about it. 92 to 2022, they have played 30. I mean, it's been 30 years, and this is the ninth time they played. They have played, you could almost say, you know, that, that's a third mm-hmm. of the time they have played. That's pretty good for Notre Dame to do that, especially when they have rivals they play every year. And if you want to say they're rivals, Stanford and USC, they play every single year. They, you know, they play a lot of other teams in the Midwest, like your Michigans, your Ohio States, teams like that. They play quite often. They play teams from Florida. I I think it's actually pretty darn nice that Notre Dame and BYU have been able to play nine times in 30 years. For me, it doesn't mean much because, like you said, I think it could have been a really, really cool rivalry if it was played a little bit more. And that's not bad. Night times isn't bad. But I feel like the storylines write themselves, both independent, both about church schools. But it didn't it didn't happen. It wasn't consistent enough for me to call it a rivalry. So I don't I don't think it's a huge deal that it's ending. But the Mormons versus Catholics playing in Sin City, Cleon, that. <laughs> is good stuff right there. Let's talk about BYU playing in Las Vegas. BYU has played in Las Vegas a total of 17 times. They're 13-4 and when playing in Vegas, and they do very well there. And Notre Dame is 10-0 and with their Shamrock Series playing in pro stadiums. So there's a lot on the line for both of these teams. Let's talk about some of BYU's most memorable games in their home, away from home, Las Vegas. I will talk about the BYU-Wyoming 96 WAC Championship game but not for too long because we've talked about yeah. it yeah. a lot on Cougar Tailgate before. BYU wins 28-25 in overtime. Uh, Wyoming had the ball first in overtime. You probably know the story. They had the ball first. They miss a field goal. BYU basically just runs to the middle to set up a field goal for Ethan Pochman. He nails it. BYU wins the WAC championship. And I will always remember that game because I was I actually attended that game. I was down there and I was a student, so You've it was a lot of fun. You've attended a lot of these big games. I, 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 it was fun to be at that game. This gave Lavelle Edwards his 18th whack title, by the way. What a legend! All right, BYU versus UCLA, 2007 Las Vegas Bowl, where BYU wins 17 to 16. Max Hall found both Austin Colley and Michael Reed to give BYU two touchdowns, along with a field goal in the first quarter. The game was 17-16 in the fourth quarter, and UCLA had one last field goal attempt that could win them the game. And lest we forget, it was blocked by Ethan Manamaleuna to give the Cougs the dub. What a game! Yeah, Leon, what's your favorite BYU game? from Vegas. Oh, well, I already mentioned one, the 96 WAC championship game. I would also say the 2006 Las Vegas Bowl, BYU-Oregon, 38-8. Not a great game, but I was at that game also as a fan, and so it was a lot of fun to be there. If I had to go something other than those two games, I'd probably say the 2007 Vegas Bowl, Mm -hmm. where BYU beats UCLA on that blocked blocked field goal. But the other one I'm going to have to say is the 2015 Mm. Vegas Bowl. Very memorable indeed. Yes. BYU lost that game, 35-28 to to the University of Utah. But I love that game because BYU turns the ball over five straight times. Utah scores five straight touchdowns. They're down, BYU's down 35 to nothing. But yet they claw their way back in. They score a touchdown right before halftime. They score three touchdowns in the second half. And it gave BYU fans at least a hope that 
maybe BYU isn't that bad. Maybe they're a better team. Plus, what else did you have in that game? Bronco Mendenhall, it's going to be his last game as Cougar head coach. It could have been his 100th victory as BYU's head coach. He doesn't get it, so he ends up with 99 victories as BYU's head coach. You had the announcement that Kalani Satake was taking over in the game, and I think the best storyline was BYU and Utah were not even supposed to play that year, (laughs) yet it happened. And Utah did not want to play BYU. Like exactly. exactly. The, all year they're like, oh, this we we really don't want to play BYU. We hate BYU, blah, blah, blah. And, and so it that's, happened anyway. That's still one of that is actually one of my favorite games. Even though BYU lost, it's one of my favorite games that BYU played in Las Vegas. I think it's definitely one of the games that sticks out most in my mind because there was so much drama, like you said, surrounding that game. I was in the midst of of sideline reporter for BYU TV and doing a lot of stuff for BYU TV at that time. So, man, we went to like Bronco Mendenhall's press conference before this game happened. And, you know, like you said, so much happening. And then for BYU to have such a dramatic comeback only to fall short. Oh, sorry, Bronco. I did. I truly did want him to get that 100th win. I thought he was a great guy. He's a great coach. I thought he deserved it and gave a lot to BYU. Uh, the 2007 one sticks out most in my mind. There's a picture of that blocked field goal that has several guys up in the air holding out their hands, and I'm pretty sure Bronco Mendenhall had it up in his office, which was really <laughs> cool. I love a dramatic ending, and that was definitely a good one. Well, this is also Notre Dame Shamrock Series game, which is pretty interesting. It, it started, this This will be the 11th one, and it started where they wanted to play in a unique venue. It started off in Texas. I think in reality they started the Shamrock Series to play a quote-unquote home game at another place for recruiting purposes. So it started off in Texas, and they have played this game a lot of different places. This game will be at Allegiant Stadium. They played at Yankee Stadium. They played at FedEx Field. They played at Fenway Park. By the way, I love that they played at baseball stadiums. I think that's really cool. Uh, They played at Soldier Field, AT&T Stadium, and the Alamo Bowl, AT&T Stadium, Alamo Bowl down in Texas. So I think it's really cool that they play these games, that they're doing it. BYU, I I think Notre Dame is the only team that really can get away with this because they're independent and they are such a big name that they can do something like this where they're like, yeah, we're going to designate a home game away from South Bend, Indiana, and we're going to get the majority of the fans. And I I think that's really cool that they can do that. I'm not sure there are a lot of other teams can do that because they aren't independent and they are kind of stuck going to different places because they're part of conferences. So BYU is never going to be able to do that. And I'm not sure any other team could really get away with that on a consistent basis like Notre Dame. To BYU's credit, they basically did that throughout independence. They weren't always the home team necessarily, but they played in a ton of professional venues where the fans travel so well, too. So it felt like a home game for BYU. So they didn't necessarily name it anything. But I feel like BYU did have the opportunity to do something similar to that in Independence. Coming up, Notre Dame's Newt Rackney was one of the greatest coaches in college football history. And joining us next is the guy who arguably knows him best, Jim LaFave, up next on Cougar Tailgate. Welcome back to Cougar Tailgate. I'm Lauren McLean alongside Cleon Wall. College football wouldn't be what it is today if it weren't for Newt Rockney. The former Notre Dame fighting Irish coach was not only successful coaching his team to victories, but also teaching others how to play the game he loved. And that includes here at BYU. 
Jim Lefebvre, Newt Rockne Memorial Society Executive Director. He's also an author and historian, joins us to talk about Rockne's lasting legacy. Jim, thank you so much for coming on with us. Oh, great to be with you. So from your research, we learned that Newt Rockne taught football at BYU. That's just crazy. How did he get that job? Well, it's it will surprise a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, considering that Notre Dame and BYU just started playing in 1992, fairly recently, mm-hmm. that they have a, a history going back nearly 100 years. Back in 1923, and BYU had just played one year of official uh, intercollegiate football at the time, and they were looking to increase their athletic profile as they were building the university in all facets. But they were very interested in this game of football and wanted to uh, create, again, greater visibility, greater success uh, in the area. So they decided to have a football course added to their summer school program. And quite wisely, they said, this will succeed if we get the biggest name possible to teach this football course. And so they turned to Coach Rockney, who already was six years on the job as head coach at Notre Dame and had a record of something like 39-3-3 and was already gaining quite a national profile as this genius coach. So it was quite quite a nice move by BYU to get him involved in a two-week coaching class in the summer program uh, in 1923. Who are these classes for? Classes were for uh, high school coaches, prep school coaches, even other college coaches, especially smaller colleges. So again, the thinking at BYU was they just wanted to make football stronger in that area of Utah and surroundings. And the way to do that would be to just raise the football acumen of the young men who were getting involved in coaches at the time. The other thing that is kind of serendipitous here is that Rockney was really the only major college coach at the time to have such a broad geographical impact. And of course, I've always said in my research on Rockney, you could name any corner of the country and I could connect it to him somehow. But Mm. the coaches at the time that were starting what were called coaching schools, let's say if they were... Zupke at Illinois or Fielding Yost at Michigan, their purview would be basically their state, their local region. Rockney had a much wider vision, and he literally, by the following summer, 1924, literally was going coast to coast. He was involved in coaching football during the summer and these classes everywhere from the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, to Oregon Agricultural in Corvallis, Oregon and many, many spots in between. So that that gives him the name that we used for our biography of him, Coach for a Nation. What's so interesting is he was a coach himself, obviously doing very, very well. I'm intrigued to know why he would want to go and teach other coaches who could learn from him and that could possibly beat him one day. From your research, what was his motivation to go coast to coast and, and teach these coaches? Well, that is a great question. And people have asked that many times of me before. And literally, there are instances that we found where he would meet with coaches after just beating them and sit down and have an impromptu session that basically teaches them, here's what we just did. Here are some of the plays that we, that we ran. Uh, it, it's just, it comes from just an amazing love for the game, wanting to see the game succeed all across the country. And I suppose also just the confidence in that 
we'll still do it in a way that's successful. And he, and it wasn't so much about what we call today the actual X's and O's. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was more about teaching a system of how to deal with young men, how to guide them, how to motivate them, you know, all wrapped up in the mechanics and the details of the game. But he just had this very expansive outlook on life itself and on his profession. And very much of it was about connections and helping young coaches advance. So and it was just fascinating to get into the in the archives at Notre Dame and find letter after letter between Rockney and all these young coaches across the country. I think before my book, it had been pretty well known that he was instrumental in sending his former players, his Notre Dame players, out to coaching positions across the country. I mean, it's the largest coaching tree ever in the history of college football. But what I really got into is his communication, his relationships with all these hundreds and hundreds, probably totaling thousands of young coaches that he'd mentored at these coaching schools. And he would advocate for them. He would connect them to openings. He really created the professional position of college football coach. I have to go back to when he was here in Provo. I imagined he taught these classes, people were engaged in what he was teaching them, but do you know what else he did while he was here in Provo? I mean, I, mean, I doubt he was teaching football all the time. Well, <laughs> uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because I believe he was coaching football all the time in one way or another. And by that, I mean that I can just envision, and we don't have any specific record of it, but we can just envision knowing his his jovial personality, his ability to connect with people, his incredible ability to remember names, faces, incidents, and the way he was sought after at any gathering of coaches across the country where the, the na- all the national big name coaches would gather. The first question on everybody's lips is, where's Rock? Where's Rock? People just wanted to associate with him. So I, I envision and, uh, at these coaching schools the informal times. You know, the mealtimes, the evening bowl sessions um, that people probably really got into it at, at that point and, and learn more about the human relations part of it, the human uh, motivation part of it that go beyond the X's and O's. But we also know that he was a great lover of the outdoors, and we believe that he joined the famous, and help me out on the name, Mount Timp. Mount Timpanogos. Mount Timpanogos. Okay, we're, there you we're go. almost <laughs> certain that he joined the annual hike up there uh, during his session, and uh, he commented mm-hmm. on it later. What a beautiful area! He just he was just taken with the physical beauty of the area, as well as the kind reception he got from the people there. Oh, I love that so much. That is a great hike. I'm glad he got to do it. How much do you believe that Rockney influenced the modern game of football today? Uh, another great question, because we can bring so many things back to the way he did things. Um, one of the main areas is two platoon football, which we, of course, our whole lifetimes and well, well before have just assumed that football was always this way. Well, it wasn't. Back in Rockney's day, coaches would uh, basically select their 11 best players, often their 11 biggest players, and play them the entire game, 60 minutes. It was very common. Uh, Substitution was severely limited by rule. In other words, if you send a sub in, 
the player that was subbed out had to sit out the rest of that quarter. So it was severely limited. And there were other rules that, that held it in check. So what Rockney did was develop an entire second team, a second 11 that he was confident enough to put into games. Not just put into games, he would start them. They would be the starting 11. So if you ever want to impress someone with a great trivia question, ask them in 1924, national champs, the four horsemen, how many games did they start that season? And the answer is zero. They didn't start a single game. Rockney had developed an entire second unit of 11 players that were good enough to start the game and hold their own, sometimes take a small lead, playing for up to the, the entire first quarter. It was a great physical ploy because it kept his start. So here he has all these American, all Americans that are on the sidelines, haven't entered the game yet, and they enter fresh while the other team is worn down. And it's a great psychological ploy as well. And he called these folks the shock troops, which is a term that came out of the Great War. Uh, and so it was the shock troops that started uh, virtually every game for several years. So that really, he, he presaged, envisioned two platoon football with a move like that. Of course, the forward pass, which he's so closely associated with, first as a player with Gus Ray in 1913 and the way it was used. But basically, he was always trying to design what he called the perfect play. And for him, the perfect play was something where if all 11 men completed their assignment to perfection, you could score from any place on the field. And that was visionary. Before Rockney came along, really, it was more of a scrum, the literal three yards in a cloud of dust, where you just tried to advance the ball down the field in short little chunks until you could push it over the goal line for a short touchdown. He envisioned what I call artistry on grass, much more wide open play that allowed fellows like him, remember he was five foot eight, 165 pounds, and he created a game in which players of that size could excel through deception, faking, precision, and teamwork. And, you know, in a, in a way, he also presaged a more wide open game that we were used to today. Including the passing game. I, I think that you want, need to include that in there. I think it's a fascinating story about how he, when he was a player slash coach, he also revolutionized passing the ball down the field. Right. And it was the second iteration of the rules change without getting into the entire history. But in 1906, the, the rules were changed to allow the forward pass, but with some pretty severe restric restrictions on where it could be thrown from. And the biggest one being that an incompletion turned the ball over to the other team. So the incompletion was the same as an interception. Then they liberalized the rules a little bit uh, going into the 1913 season. And that's where Rockney and his great teammate, Gus DeRay, the quarterback, uh, got wind of this through their coach, Jess Harper, and spent the summer. Uh, I mean, this is all true. It's, it's become kind of a legend, but it, it, it actually happened. They worked as, as, uh, in a variety of roles <clears throat> at Cedar Point Resort in Lake Erie in Ohio. And they spent the summer practicing these pass routes on the beach uh, on the shore of Lake Erie. And uh, what was different about it is that prior to that time, a pass really went from point A to point B, almost Rockney describes it as throwing a medicine ball in gym class, whereas he and DeRay developed true pass routes and a arced spiral that comes down to the receiver on the run 
And of course, they pulled it off to perfection first in the great upset of army on November 1st, 1913, and then many times subsequent. So even though they, he never, he, he or Doré never claimed to have invented the forward pass, and they didn't, that's a different story, which is a different book that I'm working on, which starts in 1906. <laughs> but they certainly revolutionized it and, and changed the game from that moment on. Jim, you clearly have a passion and have definitely done your research about Newt Rockney. And I want to know for our last question, if he was alive today, what do you think he would say about college football and especially about the games between Notre Dame and BYU football? Ooh, wow. Another great question. Um, and the way the game is changing so quickly, and not the game itself, the whole milieu of the game between conference realignment and name, image, and likeness and coaches getting fired left and right. Um, it, it's really hard to say what he'd think of that, but I think he would like the way the game is played on the field for the most part, and especially an effort to, to clean it up, to try to control brutality. Remember back in his day, the game almost got banned because so many players were dying uh, of football. That's, that was the big uh, impetus in 1906 for the rules change and creation of the NCAA. But he'd certainly like a game that's wide open, that focuses on speed, faking, precision, all those types of things. He, he would like two really well-coached teams, which is what I think we have on Saturday. And he'd like the spectacle. Let's face it, Vegas, baby. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> he was all about, he, was, he basically created the neutral site game. Uh, remember, he, you know, when, he, when they first started playing Army, it was up at West Point, and then they brought that game into New York City, and it became the sports event of the year. Notre Dame Army, first at Ebbets Field, then Polo Grounds for one year, and finally Yankee Stadium for decades. That was the sports event of the year, uh, really, on the East Coast. And, he, lo and he, he loved all the games like that, uh, playing Northwestern, not on campus, but at Soldier Field, uh, playing uh, big games in, you know, the, the professional baseball stadiums, what they were at the time in Baltimore, in Pittsburgh. And then, of course, the uh, great USC series at the L.A. Coliseum. So he was he was all about promotion and crowds and publicity. And, you know, he, he had the great personality to go with all, with all that. So he would love what Notre Dame does with what they call their Shamrock series, which is one, mm -hmm. remember this is a Notre Dame home game. So they take one home game a year and play it somewhere in a neutral site, uh, often trying to get in front of crowds that normally wouldn't get a chance to see them. He'd love it. Mm. Incredible stuff. Jim LaFave, Newt Rockney Memorial Society Executive Director, author, and historian. Thank you so much for imparting your incredible knowledge on us today. Um, I have so much more respect for you and for Newt Rockney, and thank you so much again for taking the time. My pleasure to be with you, and enjoy the game on Saturday. Newt Rockney obviously was a legend. Let's talk about some of our favorite coaches of all time. I'm going to go with Lavelle Edwards. Oh, sure. You had to steal that one. Oh, because he is. He is another legend in college football. I remember going to Oregon to the Nike campus. And when they saw Lavelle Edwards walking in, they treated him like royalty. And they, are, there was like, they have a, his face like up on this wall that has all the legendary coaches. That was one of the first times for me where I was like, whoa, 
This guy is a big deal. He had 19 conference titles, 10-10-1 seasons, obviously 1984 National Championship, used the vertical passing game to match up with the nation's elite at the time, coached five first-team All-American quarterbacks, and created the quarterback factory. An ESPN writer said, I loved this. BYU became known for exciting, entertaining, edge-of-the-seat college football, and it proved that three yards and a cloud of dust wasn't the only way to win games. It was just the old-fashioned one. And Lavelle Edwards was the one who changed that. And I would just say also, I had got to give props to this guy. Don't love him, but it's Nick Saban. <laughs> I know, but he <laughs> he has become a legend in his right, even though he is still coaching. What he has done with that program, making it a powerhouse, and you almost expect them to win the national championship year in and year out. You got you to give that guy credit. I think Nick Saban is one of the best coaches of all time. Uh, I like Lavelle for everything that you said above. I, I got to interview Lavelle for a piece I did for KSL a while ago, and it was so fun just to sit down with him. This is years and years after he retired, and it was fun just to sit down with him and talk football, and it was it was just a blast to to be able to talk with him. Uh, my two are going to be Bobby Bowden, Florida State. Uh, I like that he scheduled BYU, was good friends with Lavelle Edwards, and was also able to turn a just like an also-ran program around uh, and he was just one of those guys that he would he was always talking about, well, I'm not sure how good we are, even though he knew in a lot of years Florida State was the best team in the nation. Right. So he always downplayed his teams, but he knew in the back of his mind. He knew in the back of his For mind. Sure. But he'd go to news conferences, well, I'm not sure if we're going to beat BYU this game, knowing in his back of his mind, oh, we're going to beat them. <laughs> we're, we're good. So uh, the other guy I'm going to bring up is Kyle Whittingham. I just have so much respect for him. I know he's not perfect, but he's steady. He continued a winning culture at Utah after Urban Meyer left. Whittingham built his identity around defense, and that's what carried him this whole entire time. I'm also glad he stuck with Utah. I mean, yeah, he made a lot of money by sticking with Utah. I get that. But I'm glad he didn't say, you know what, I want to go coach at USC, or you know what, I want to go coach somewhere else. He's like, I got a good thing going here. I like it, and they like me too. And I've never, ever heard, or at least I don't remember Kyle ever being on the hot seat, even those first few years in the pack in the Pac-12. And so I have a lot of respect for Kyle Whittingham. One other thing I will say, I was also grateful that Kyle stopped calling BYU the team down south. Well, that was an Urban Meyer thing. No, I know, but I'm just glad that he stopped it because he could have continued it. And he's just like, nah, I'm not going to do it. I graduated from BYU. I respect BYU. They're BYU. They're not the team down south. Yeah, I like Kyle Whittingham. I think he's a great guy, and he's a wonderful coach as well. All right, that does it for us today. Thanks again to Jim LaFave for coming on the show with us. You can join the Cougar Tailgate wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, or on BYUradio.org. Cougar Tailgate is a production of BYU Radio.